All right, it is such a blessing to be able to share with you this morning. I begin today with a question for you. What is revival? Some have referred to it as an awakening. In describing what happened during Jonathan Edwards' Northampton, Massachusetts church in 1734, which became a part of the first great awakening, observers said this, it pleased God to display his free and sovereign mercy and the conversion of a great multitude of souls in a short space of time, turning them from a formal, cold, and careless profession of Christianity to the lively exercise of every Christian grace and the powerful practice of our holy religion. That's about as clear a definition as we will ever get as regarding what revival is about. During a spiritual revival, God supernaturally transforms believers and non-believers in a church, in a locale, in a region, a nation, or even throughout the world. Suddenly, with intense enthusiasm for Christianity, people sense the presence of God powerfully, conviction, despair, contrition, repentance, and prayer come easily. People suddenly thirst for God's word. Many authentic conversions occur, and those who have been a part of the body of Christ, yet their relationship with him has grown cold or suddenly renewed. What is true revival? Some have referred to it as an awakening. Typically, that is the term that is used when it spreads beyond a local church. It is a sudden awareness of the presence and the power of God. But it has to be much more than simply awareness. Revival without the power of God transforming lives is no revival at all. I want to repeat that because this is going to be an important principle throughout this series that will begin today. Revival without the power of God transforming lives is no revival at all. In other words, you can talk the spiritual game and you can look really happy and you can act like you are a child of God when you're in front of the church. But if lives aren't being transformed, it's not really revival. Such revival is not reserved only for those who do not yet know the Lord. Listen again to the quote from Jonathan Edwards' revival, known as the First Great Awakening. It pleased God to display his free and sovereign mercy in the conversion of a great multitude, multitude of souls in a short space of time, turning them from a formal, cold, and careless profession of Christianity. And it talked a little bit more there, but the point was those who were being converted were those who were already experiencing a cold, formal, careless profession of Christianity. This suggests to me that it is likely that it is the church that needs revival as much as anyone else. Through this particular revival, their faith took on new meaning and new power. It caused them to joyfully seek out Micah 6.8, which instructs us to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. It changed everything for them. In fact, consider the words of 1 Samuel chapter 7, 
verse 3 through 4. There are actually many Old Testament passages that deal with revival among the people of God. But I love the simplicity of this particular message. 1 Samuel, again, chapter 7, verse 3 and 4, says the following. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. The children of God, those who walked in the presence and the blessing of God, they finally put away their idols of worship. They finally devote themselves only to the Lord. Again, it would seem that the ones in greatest need of revival, much like in the days of Jonathan Edwards, the people who needed revival were those who were already a part of the quote-unquote family of God. Sure, there were others from outside of the church that needed the transforming power of God, but it was the church that needed to be awakened. So please get what I'm saying here as we start this series. The first thing that I need everyone to understand is that as we seek revival, the goal is not that the rest of the world be changed. Certainly, that would be a wonderful thing. The goal is that we would be changed, that we would experience a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit so that we would be made new. I do hope that others then will respond But our primary goal is that the people of God will become people who reflect the Spirit of God. We must experience a great awakening in our soul to once again hunger and thirst after the righteousness of God and never be satisfied with anything else. There is a call to us to thirst after God like King David did as he declared in Psalm 42 verse 1, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul also pants for you, O God. May God cause such a revival to begin in us today. So we know what revival is. It is an awakening. It is a, a, an awareness, but it is also the transforming power of God in us. And we'll certainly look at other elements of revival in the coming weeks. But the next question that has to be asked from the very beginning is what can be done for God's people to experience such revivals? In 1949, a region called the Outer Hebrides off the northwest coast of Scotland, there were two elderly sisters who began to pray that God would send revival. The sisters were named Peggy and Christine Smith. Peggy was 84, legally blind, whereas Christine was 82 and constantly doubled over with pain from arthritis. They weren't able to be at church due to their physical limitations, yet they reasoned that they could at least pray for the church, and so they did. Across town, there was a group of seven men who also felt led to pray specifically for revival. They determined that they would meet three nights per week in a barn, praying through various scriptures. 
One night in particular, they prayed with great fervency the words of Psalm 24, verse 3 through 5, which says, Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, he shall receive the blessing from the God of his salvation. They recalled that instantly upon praying those verses, that God's blessing fell upon them. They said that the barn was filled with the Spirit of God and that they knew God was about to do a great work. That very evening, unrelated to these seven men, that very evening, one of the sisters that I referenced earlier sent a message to her pastor declaring that they had prayed through and that God was about to pour out his spirit on their land. In the days that would follow, it would be revealed that the revelation of God to these seven men and to these two women would prove true. The whole region seemed saturated with God. Wherever people were, in the workplace, in their homes, or on the roads, they were overwhelmed by the presence of Almighty God. In what seemed to be a spiritually dry and parched land, the Spirit was poured out, soaking the dry ground as Holy Spirit conviction was poured out in those days. A stream of blessing flowed that brought hundreds to salvation in the days ahead. And it all began with a few people who purposed in their hearts to pray for revival. How many of you would like to see that kind of revival take place here today? The kind of revival where hundreds of people are surrendering their lives to Christ. The kind of revival where those who are in the church and have been in the church all of their lives and have maybe kept the list of do's and don'ts, suddenly become awakened to the presence of God in their lives. As you look at the brokenness within our world and you see the fighting that takes place even amongst Christians, and you see the immorality of today's culture become the norm of society, as you see young people who are tasked with choosing between the old-fashioned religious practices of their grandparents or what has been deemed by society to be the more logical dependence on science and pseudoscience. Two weeks ago, I spoke on the fact that the Lord could be returning at any point. With that in mind, I would love to see revival break out among humanity. In fact, about every weekend... From this pulpit, we pray for revival to fall upon our governing officials. Let me be honest, I'm tired of praying about it. I genuinely want to see it happen in our midst. I'm going to continue to pray. Because <laughs> I do believe that that is the only way that it will happen. I want so much to see that fulfilled. Over the next month, I want to focus on what needs to happen prior to revival as well as what will happen when God chooses to send revival. And it is all backed up by the Word of God. So let's start here. What does it take for the Lord to send revival? Prayer always precedes revival. 
In fact, we see this throughout history as well as in the scriptures. It was a theologian named Matthew Henry who said, when God intends to do great mercy for his people, the first thing he does is sets them a praying. And Leonard Ravenhill said, at God's counter, there are no sale days for the price of revival is always the same, to travail. The term travail is a reference to one who prays until something happens. More than just that passing thought of, oh, by the way, God, do you think you could send revival? This is the unwavering pursuit of a move of God. This is the desperate plea of a mother who pleads for the life of her child or the soul of her spouse. It is the idea that I can't wait for this to happen, so I will travail, I will push through, I will press on, continually asking until I get a response. So these theologians are declaring that the only way we are going to see revival is if God's people will begin to pray for it to happen. This is confirmed in the Word of God, by the way. Listen to just a few examples this morning. Exodus 2, verse 24 and 25, God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. They're groaning, they prayed, they called out to the Lord for his help and his grace and he responded. 2 Chronicles 7, 1 through 2 says, when Solomon finished praying, Fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not even enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. That began when Solomon finished praying. Acts 1, verse 14, and Acts 2, verse 1 through 4 says, they all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brother. And then in chapter, chapter 2, verse 1 through 4, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled. I have one more I'll read to you, Acts 4, verse 31. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. The point is, there is a natural order to things. There is even a natural order to the supernatural. Whether we're talking about a nation that has found itself under the weight of oppression and they're crying out for mercy as the first scripture I read to you described, or it's simply a people who desperately need God to do something powerful and overwhelming. When people pray, they open the door to God's movement. Consider the familiar words of 2 Chronicles seven fourteen. And this will be our key verse throughout this series. We are told that if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and 
pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sins and heal their land. Note that the very first thing that God's people are called to do is to humble themselves and pray. I am so glad that somebody taught me how to pray. I know that Jesus' disciples wondered aloud at how they were supposed to pray. And Jesus taught them, and all of you probably know this prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. You know, I love the simplicity of that prayer. But something that I want you to note, even in that prayer, is that Jesus begins with a call for God to allow his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, make this place like it is there. Make us holy. Make us pure, because nothing impure will ever enter into the kingdom of heaven. So to make this place like that place, that means something needs to change in us. Send revival to this land. Let your will be done in us. And his will would be that nobody should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So even within Jesus' prayer, we are called to revival. By the way, interesting thought to that prayer. Uh, as I was preparing for the sermon this week, I saw something in there. It just reminded me this model of prayer is a little bit unique because Jesus is praying something that he's praying for something that probably didn't apply to him directly. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. Now, the idea of him forgiving others does make sense. But what trespasses did he have? The reality is Jesus was without sin. He had never done anything that would be considered a trespass, spiritually speaking. Yet here he is, he says, forgive us our trespasses. I will say this, he did bear the weight of all sin. Jesus Christ took your sins and my sins upon him. And because of that, as we talk about revival, it has been made possible by the blood of Jesus that has been shed for you and for me. I truly do love the prayer that is offered there. It is a call for us to experience revival. But prayer is more than a bunch of empty words. At least it's supposed to be. So what should prayer look like for us? I'm reminded of a dad who came looking for deliverance for his son, as recorded in the book of Mark, chapter 9. If you want, you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles there. We see within this particular passage that passionate prayers produce a powerful response. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 27. As you're turning, I remember in high school, 
that prayer that Jesus offered. I played on a football team where at the end of each practice and at, at the beginning of each game, our team would gather in the locker room. And there would be a local pastor who would come in and he would pray with our team. And each time he would finish with the prayer, we would break into what's called the Lord's Prayer. I got to be honest with you, for most of us, and maybe even including myself at that point in time, they were empty words. I know that there's great power in that prayer, but I wasn't really thinking about what I was praying. This was more about me going through the ritual of prayer. Well, what happens when the body of Christ moves from the ritual of prayer to the passion of prayer? And suddenly we can't be satisfied with just saying, well, I did my part, I prayed. Mark chapter 9, verse 14 through 27 says this. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? He said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything... Have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, now help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. I know it's a long story, and at times we've used elements within this story. We've talked about this call to faith, where he says to Jesus, If you can do anything, if being the key word, and Jesus basically calls him out, If you only believed that it could be done. He says, I do believe. Now, heal my unbelief. The father was not casually asking Jesus that if you have a little extra time and if you feel like it, do you think you could deliver my son? This was at a time when Jesus had sent out his disciples to heal and to cast out evil spirits. And apparently there was a problem. Although they had done many great things already, they come across this man and his son, and they don't seem to have what it takes. But the father won't take no for an answer. 
He's not satisfied with, well, at least we tried. Now picture his father. Not trying to discredit Jesus or his disciples. He has one thing in mind. He and his boy need a powerful move of God. And he's not willing to let this opportunity pass. As Jesus approaches, there's an argument that's taking place. And I picture this dad pleading with them, but didn't he send you out to heal those who were sick and to cast out demons? Well, yeah, he did send us out, but apparently we're not able to do anything. But that's not good enough. And that father was not okay with at least we tried. He truly expected God to move. I'm going to tell you, he's probably tried every other route by this point. He's probably been to doctors. He's probably been to the priests. He's probably been to every wise person that he could come across. And nobody could help his son. I can't let Jesus pass without me finding out if there's any hope for my son. As he pleaded with the disciples and then with Jesus... He would not take no for an answer because he knew he needed a powerful move of God. We cannot afford to let this opportunity pass for us. We too need a powerful move of God. We need more than a physical healing, although there may be some who need a physical healing as well. We need the Spirit of God, to come in and to revive our hearts again. We need God to make us fully alive in Him to the point that we are so filled with the Spirit of God that we begin to splash out on other people. You ever filled your cup of tea or whatever it is so far up by accident because you weren't paying attention and you look at the rim of it and it seems like the, the tea is actually about to spill over? And somebody nudges the table. And what was in the glass suddenly begins to splash out. Well, what would it be like if the people of God were so filled with the Spirit of God that when somebody bumped the table, that the Spirit of God would begin to splash out on them? I am inviting you today to begin to passionately pray for that to take place among God's people. And more specifically, I pray that it would begin here and now. As much as I would love to see revival take place in other places, and I do hope that it happens in other places, my prayer is that it would begin here in this place. When I say I invite you to pray that revival would happen, I don't mean just now when the pastor's going to pray. I don't mean just when you're at church on Sunday morning. I don't mean just tonight when you're getting ready to go to bed and you pray, Lord, go ahead and send revival. I'm talking about not being able to take no for an answer. Not being able to be satisfied with, well, at least we tried. I remember many years ago, I had a lady in our church in Pennsylvania who shared that God calls her to pray for the people that she dislikes the most, not for their benefit, but for hers. 
She said, what happens is when I begin to pray for them, my heart is the one that is changed. What would happen if the people of God collectively began to pray that revival would take place? I'm going to tell you that hearts would be changed, but I'm not talking about theirs. I'm talking about ours. We would be the ones that would be changed. We would be transformed by that act. But it cannot be just empty words. Again, I'm not saying that the Lord's Prayer was empty. But if you're just praying it out of ritual, you're not praying with the passion that I will guarantee you Jesus himself prayed with. If we are to pray passionately for revival, that means that this is the one thing that we will seek above all else in the days and the weeks to come. There may be needs that are present in your life today, and I encourage you to bring those needs before the Lord. But do you know that those needs are passing? Those needs are temporary. There is a need for a spiritual revival. And if that truly takes place, then this place will be changed. That means that every time you get alone, Every time you're by yourself, it's an opportunity to pray. Every time you close your eyes, it's an opportunity to pray. Every time you can, I am pleading with you to begin to pray for revival. As I have prepared for this series, I have read so many different records of different revivals that have taken place. Some of them well before we were born, and I say we as in all of us. Uh, some of them more recent. What is collectively true in each of those situations is when the Spirit of God began to move, there was little that anyone could do to stop that move of God. There may be times that things came up. There was a revival that took place shortly before the beginning of the Civil War. It is said that perhaps the Civil War might have softened the impact of that revival. And maybe that's true. Some have suggested, because it began in the Northeast, that maybe that was a part of what spurred those in the North to fight against slavery. See, the point is, it is the power of God moving in those situations. Man cannot stop that from happening. But we do have a role in helping to see it start. Our role is to pray. And not just in a token way but with everything that we have and everything that we are. Can you imagine how much your life would be changed if you experienced a true revival? Can you imagine how those around you, your family members, your loved ones, your friends, your neighbors, can you imagine how those around you would be changed if true revival took place in you and then spread to them and then spread to their friends and their family and spread to... It would become like a contagious disease, much better than COVID. <laughs> Can you imagine how different our world would look if it began to spread today? If you would, I'm going to invite you to bow your heads with me. Father, as we come before you today, Lord, we do seek revival. Father, we look at the brokenness of our world. And we need a miraculous intervention of God. 
there are all kinds of things that are happening around us, some of them natural, some not so natural. And when it comes down to it, we have become a very desperate people. We recognize that in the midst of all of these revivals that have taken place in the past, it would seem that you often show up in the midst of the most difficult times when it seems like everything's falling apart, when there is great turmoil, when there is brokenness everywhere. And we look around us today and we recognize that those things are present today. Sometimes it even seems as if the church has become silent. We no longer have a purpose, a meaning. We no longer have the impact that we once had. Lord, I cannot think of a better time for you to send revival among your people. Lord, I pray for every individual who has lived this formal, cold, and careless Christian life, going through the motions of Christianity, making sure that we're in church, faithful to give, making sure that we read our Bibles, but not truly being filled with the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray today that you would fill us with your Spirit and that we would have such a hunger for you that nothing else could satisfy us. Lord, I pray that you would fill us today and change who we are, that although we have walked through the, walked through the list of do's and don'ts, Lord, I pray that it would become more than that, that truly we would be changed. Lord, I pray that lives would be changed. I pray that people would find victory. I pray that those who have been defeated by addiction and all kinds of other issues would suddenly recognize that there is hope, and I no longer need to be defeated by this. Lord, I pray that you would send revival to us now. Lord, I pray that it would begin here. In fact, I'm not even praying that it begins in my church. I pray that it would begin in me. Father, I pray that you would revive my heart so that I would hunger after you more than anything else. Lord, I pray that you would constantly remind me of how much I need you. I need you more. Lord, I pray that you would pour out your spirit in me. I pray that others would jump on board and do the same thing, but I pray today that revival would start in me. Father, I pray for your will to be done in us. Help us today to begin to faithfully seek revival. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. By the way, John Wesley uh, had been faithful in ministering before the Lord for many years. As he was on a journey, he was on a ship with a group of people known as the Moravians. And as he was worshiping, they were in a time of prayer. And he said, suddenly he felt his heart strangely warmed. It was in that moment that he recognized that the Holy Spirit had come upon him. And he had been filled with that spirit. Thing is, he was already serving the Lord. He was already in church. He was leading other people, yet he had not truly experienced a revival in his heart. I want you to know today that maybe you've gone through the, the ritual of church for a long time. There is hope and God can cause your heart to be strangely warm just as well as his. God still desires to make us alive and that is my prayer that he would do that in us today. It is such a blessing to have you, and I look forward to seeing how God works in the coming weeks. If you want 
Uh, on Sunday nights, we're doing a little follow-up of this, uh, and we're going to be looking each week at different revivals that took place in the scriptures. And if you would like to follow along with us, we do that online, or you can come here at the church. We would love to have you for that as well. Uh, if you want to read on your own, start looking up some of these other revivals that take place, have taken place around the world. Know that if God can do it in one place and at one time, he can do it again here. And it may not look exactly the same. It's one of the things that's kind of unique. There's something different about each one of them, but there's also something that's the same. It always begins with people, God's people praying. And my prayer is that would be the